Today's scripture reading comes to us from Colossians 2, verse 8 to 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you now bow your heads and join me in prayer? Father, we ask that you would now speak to us as you said you would in your word, that you would be present as the preaching of the gospel would come forth. And we ask, Holy Spirit, you who dwell within and you who are working amongst us, that you would quicken our hearts and our minds and that you would bring regeneration and that you would further our sanctification so that we would become more like our beloved Savior Jesus Christ in his holiness and his character so that as we come together in community because of such loving character being lived out, we can come to understand who we are in our own unique way. Father, we pray that whatever distraction or discouraging of thoughts that may be swirling in our minds, that you would banish them away from our hearts and our minds so that we can be fully attentive to all that you want us to receive this morning. We pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Okay, folks, so throughout the month of July, we're going through our annual sermon series entitled Shoebox. And if you're curious about why the title of the series is called Shoebox, well, let me explain. Many, many years ago, when I was a youth pastor, every March, I would literally hand out a shoebox, one shoebox, and I would ask my youth group students to submit in paper a question, an issue, a struggle regarding the Christian faith that either they did not understand or they didn't agree with. And then when July came along, I would pick the top four most popular questions, issues, or concerns that they had about the faith, and I would proceed to answer it. And I thought I would do the same with you as your pastor. And the reason why I did it back then is the same reason why I'm doing it now, is so that in the hopes as you get these questions and concerns and issues settled, it would fortify your faith, it would strengthen your confidence in Christianity, thereby allowing you to focus on the main thing that God calls us to focus on, which is to be a blessing to each other and to the world. And so today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is perhaps the most contentious one that has brought so much division amongst devout followers of Jesus. And that is the topic of baptism, specifically baptizing infants or baby baptism, right? Or if you want to use a theological term, pedo-baptism. Now, just out of curiosity, who amongst you in here, by showing of hands, were baptized as babies? Can you raise your hands if you were baptized as babies? Raise it high so I can see it. Don't be ashamed, right? All right. Now, how many of you in here were baptized by your own profession as adults? Raise your hand. Okay. Interesting. Whenever that question is posed, usually the people 
who were baptized their infants totally outweigh those who were baptized as adults. And the reason for that is pretty simple. When you consider the umbrella known as Christianity, that includes Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox Church, the Coptic Church, and the Protestant Church, which is what we are, hands down, the vast majority of all these churches baptize babies, okay? Now, of course, each of these churches have different reasons as to why they baptize children or infants, but the main point is, throughout the history of the church and throughout the main traditions of all the churches that we see today, the majority has been they baptize infants. Now, of course, there are some Christian traditions today that do not baptize uh, infants or babies, and those are the churches that come out of what is known as the Anabaptist tradition. Anabaptist literally just means rebaptizers, and of course, we see these churches today going on in the form of Baptist churches everywhere. All Baptist churches that you see today right, come from the Anabaptist traditions, okay? And if you're wondering where NCF stands on this item, let me tell you flat out, we are a church that baptized babies. That is our theological conviction as a church. Now, of course, that does not mean that in order to be a member of this church, you're obligated to also agree with that to where if you have a baby, I'm going to visit you with a big bowl of water and say, are you ready? You know, I'm not going to do that, all right? I'm not going to force your baby to be baptized. But when it comes to the ordained leadership of the church, Pastor James, myself, we firmly believe that baptizing infants of Christian parents is something that the Bible teaches and therefore something the Bible commands. And it's my hope that as you listen to today's sermon, if you stand on the other side of this issue, you'll be persuaded by the message today. And even if you aren't, at least you'll be convinced to reconsider the claims to where it would stimulate you to do some more personal further study so that you'll come out of your senses, come to your senses, excuse me, and finally come to the truth as I have. Okay, so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you with regard to infant baptism. Number one, we're going to start off by talking about what baptism is. Number two, we're going to talk about why we baptize our babies. And finally, we're going to end up with how we answer the critics of baby baptism. What baptism is, why we baptize our babies, and finally, how we answer the critics to those who don't agree with us. Ready? Let's jump right in. First, what baptism is. If you were following along as John wonderfully read our passage today, you probably notice that it says nothing about infant baptism. It says something about baptism for sure, but it does not say anything explicitly on infant baptism itself. And the reason why I bring this up is because one of the main criticisms of those who don't agree with me say is there is no explicit teaching, there is no explicit command in the New Testament that we are to baptize babies. And you know what? They're absolutely right. If you try to find a specific command or specific statement in the Bible that says, thou shalt baptize your baby, Christian, you will not find it. It is not in there. And so the criticism goes, hey, we the church should not be doing something that the Bible does not explicitly teach. Ergo, we should not be baptizing our babies, especially when we realize it brings such division and disunity in the church. But if we follow that kind of rationale consistently, we would be in trouble, and a lot of our core issues and doctrines that we believe as a church would also be in trouble. For example, consider the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity, one of the core doctrines that the church has held and fought for since its beginning. The belief that our God, the singular God, the one true God, is made up of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Would you be surprised to know that in the New Testament, there is no explicit teaching whatsoever 
that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Look for it. You will not find it. There is no explicit teaching in the New Testament today that clearly and directly says with explicitness that our God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is why the Moonies are still around, folks. This is why Mormonism is still growing. This is why Jehovah's Witnesses are still around and they're outpacing us in evangelism. Shame on you, Christian, right? This is why we see these cults still going on today. Mm -hmm. And yet, no critic of infant baptism would ever dare say, hey, because the New Testament doesn't explicitly teach the doctrine of Trinity, we should no longer believe it. They would never, ever say it whatsoever. What's my point? My point is this. When it comes to what the scripture commands us to believe as well as what the scripture commands us to do, you have to understand that these commands, some of them go beyond what is explicitly taught. In other words, if you want to be a consistent Christian, you also have to follow everything that the Bible teaches explicitly and implicitly. And just like the doctrine of the... I'm sorry about the mic, folks. Try your best not to be distracted by it. I'm trying my best. But just like the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of infant baptism is an implicit teaching of the Bible and therefore a teaching that we're all commanded to obey. Now, before I go any further on this topic of infant baptism, I want to first start off on talking about what we all agree, no matter where you stand on this issue, and that is baptism itself, to where I thou ask, what is baptism? What is just baptism in general? Not infant baptism. What is baptism? Read again with me verse 12 of our passage where Paul writes the following. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Here, Paul makes a passing reference to baptism. And notice what he associates baptism with. He associates with what? The burial of Jesus. Okay? Being buried with Jesus. That's the hymn that he's referring to when he says that we were buried with him in baptism. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the writings of Paul, you will know that this statement faintly echoes what he says elsewhere with much more clarity and with much more directness. I draw your attention to Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We read, Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? death for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the father now we also may live new lives here Paul tells us that baptism is a symbol of our death with Jesus baptism is a symbol of our death with Jesus so for example when a pastor like myself baptizes a person whether it's by sprinkling them on the head or burying their body under the water you know for a brief period of time What that act is telling us is that the person who is baptized is being buried with Jesus. They're dead with Jesus. Now, on the one hand, that sort of kind of makes sense because water in the Bible is a symbol of death. Noah's flood, right? But on the other hand, it makes no sense at all. What does that even mean to be buried with Jesus, to be dead with Jesus? That just sounds weird and How can that be when we're still living and breathing? And why is that even necessary? It just sounds so morbid. It sounds so weird. Well, perhaps this illustration could help. Think of a wedding ceremony. Think of what's happening at a wedding ceremony. 
an occasion that is a joyful thing because right before our eyes, we're witnessing at that moment something new being created where a man and a woman are becoming a new entity. They're becoming united as husband and wife. But here's what's also happening for those of you who aren't aware. At a wedding ceremony, a death is occurring, specifically two deaths. The husband and wife, as they become united, they're both dying, right? They're both dying. <clears throat> See, in order for this union of husband and wife to happen, death must happen for both the bridegroom and bride, which means they must be dead to other people. And of course, we don't say it that way, but in our modern parlance, we simply say it in a different way. They have to be off the market, right? As a husband and wife, they are alive only to each other, but they are dead to everyone else, meaning there's no chance in any way for them to be united in love with anybody else. And that's what it means to be buried with Jesus. It means when you become a Christian, you become dead to any other possible loves, namely the love of sin. You see, just like your life as a bachelor or bachelorette dies the moment you become a married person, so also your life as a sinner dies the moment you become a Christian. And that is what baptism symbolizes. That's why it's referred to as being dead with Christ when you are baptized, okay? Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. He says, starting in verse 2, When a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead as a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old sin nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produce a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. So, putting all this together, what is baptism? Baptism is a symbol of our union with Jesus that is analogous to the union between a man and his wife, which means all the benefits that come out of our union with Jesus, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to live a more holy life, those benefits are also symbolized in our baptism, just like the benefits of marriage are symbolized in a wedding ring. You see? Now, as you hear all this, you're probably thinking to yourself, Pastor, if what you said so far up till now is true, then why in the world will we baptize babies? Why in the world will we baptize infants? Because after all, babies don't get married. They're not old enough to get married. They can't enjoy the benefits of marriage. And if Paul puts an analogy between baptism and marriage, then why in the world would we offer that sign to a baby as if they can receive the benefits of being united to Christ when that union is symbolized through marriage? That's a great question. And to answer, let me go to my next point, why we baptize our babies. Now, just a continued thought that I ended my first point with a moment ago. Yes, we do not allow our babies to get married, right? Because they don't have the maturity. And most importantly, they don't have the ability to consent, to have willful consent in order to get married. And because the New Testament passages, like the ones that we're studying, make the analogy of baptism to a marriage ceremony, ceremony we logically conclude, therefore, infants should not receive the sign, the symbol of baptism. 
But think about that for a moment. Let it sink in and consider the implications that come out of that kind of thinking. Because think again what baptism essentially says about the person getting baptized. What are we saying about the person who gets baptized? Aren't we saying that they are saved by God through Jesus Christ? Isn't that what we are saying? That they've been rescued from the condemnation of God's wrath and they have now received God's mercy and favor and love in Jesus, okay? Now, if we withhold baptism from a baby, what are we essentially saying about the eternal status of that baby by withholding baptism? Aren't we saying that that baby is not saved? Aren't we saying? Are we okay here? Should I not move around? Should I just stand still like a good Presbyterian pastor? We'll keep going. Bear with me. I so, so apologize. It's very distracting for me, much more than it is for you, I guarantee. If you don't agree, let's switch spots for 30 seconds. (laughs) Is it my mic? Should I turn this off and use this mic? Okay. Test. We're going old school now. Okay. Man, I haven't done this since the 90s. Okay. Where was I? <laughs> uh, where was I? Okay. Oh, yeah. What are we saying about a baby, right, by refusing to get them baptized? Aren't we saying that they're not saved? Because if they were saved, we would baptize them, right? Now, I know some of you might push back and say, no, 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 pastor, you sneaky guy. That's not why we don't baptize babies. We don't baptize babies because we know they're not saved. No, we don't baptize babies because we don't know if they are saved. And until we know that they are saved, we will not baptize them. And perhaps for some of you, that might be your pushback as well. And if it is, consider the following quotes from some very well-respected and well-renowned pastors who are against infant baptism And take a listen to what they say. The first is from John MacArthur, a very well-known, well-respected Baptist pastor in California who's a staunch critic of infant baptism. He says this, quote, All men are sinners, and they have no right to go to heaven, and that is universally true. Therefore, if we go to heaven, it's not because we have the right. It's because God is gracious. The best illustration I know of that is God sovereignly and graciously saving infants that die. God in grace saves the little ones that die, and I think the case is made all throughout Scripture that he does that. Here's another one, Thomas Schreiner, arguably one of the best New Testament scholars out there. He says this, quote, I think the answer is yes. Infants will be in heaven. Infants will be saved. We don't have a direct scripture on that, so we have to argue theologically. I'm not arguing infants go to heaven because they are innocent. They are not innocent. They're born into the world as sinners, but God shows them mercy and grants them eternal life. And then finally, John Piper, someone who many of you well respect and follow, he says this, I think babies are all saved. Interesting. I find it so interesting that pastors who refuse to baptize babies because of the argument of uncertainty in the very next breath will say with certainty, all babies that die tragically, right, are all saved. They're all in heaven. Where's the consistency? Now, I know the pushback that people can have to my questioning of their consistency is questioning my own, right? 
to where my Baptist brothers and sisters could retort with a question like, well, then why don't you baptize all babies there, Mr. Presbyterian? Huh? If you want to be consistent with your belief that babies should be baptized, then shouldn't you baptize all babies and not just babies who are born by Christian parents or born in a Christian home? Ah, now things have gotten interesting. Why don't Presbyterian pastors like myself baptize all babies? Why do I limit baptism to only those who grew up in a Christian home or by Christian parents? After all, if I'm criticizing Baptists for their inconsistency in believing all babies go to heaven, which I happen to agree with, by the way, then aren't I also guilty as charged as well of being inconsistent, of withholding baptism to babies who do not come from Christian homes or do not come from Christian parents? Now... We're in a perfect position to begin to answer the question of the second point, and that is why we baptize our babies. Notice I'm emphasizing our to focus on babies born specifically in Christian homes, born by Christian parents. Read again verse 9 and 10 of our passage where Paul writes, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now notice Paul refers to his readers as being in him, that is, being in Jesus. And that simply is Paul's way of saying that believers are united to Jesus, which, remember, is what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes that they are united to Christ. And then notice what Paul goes on to say about this Jesus that they are united to in verse 10. Who is he? He is the head. He is not a head. No, he is the head, meaning he is the master of the universe. He is the Lord of all. He is the final authority over everything and over everyone, including you, including me. And because Jesus is the head, those who are united to him, symbolized by their baptism, what are they? Verse 10, they are filled in him. Filled in him. That word fill in the Greek, is conveying this idea of a cup that's filled to the very, very brim, at the very edge of the top, where there's no room for anything else, okay? And so here's the question. What in the world is Paul getting at by referencing this idea that you and I are filled in Jesus? Well, in order to answer that, you have to know a little background that Paul is writing to. You see, Paul wrote this letter to the church in a city that had lots of cults. Lots and lots of Christian cults. And what ended up happening is some of these cult leaders infiltrated the church in Colossae. And what they were trying to do is impose on the church members to obey strict laws and to partake in strict rituals. Some of which came in the Old Testament. Okay? You see, what these false teachers were saying was that in order to be a true Christian, you needed more than simple faith in Jesus Christ. Because as far as they were concerned, Jesus wasn't filling enough. You need Jesus plus something else. And that something, for example, included things like circumcision. Circumcision. Now I'm going to come back to circumcision in just a moment. But just know for now that when Paul says that his Christian readers are filled in Jesus... What he's simply saying is they don't need to follow any strict laws. They don't need to partake in any strict rituals because Jesus is enough. All they need is just Jesus himself. Just believe that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to forgive you of all your sins. Just believe that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was enough for you to acquire eternal life so that with these two blessings combined, you could have the ultimate blessing of being happily ever after with God for all eternity. In other words, Jesus did all that was necessary, all that was 
needed, all that was non-negotiable in order for you and I to have a loving, fruitful relationship with God. Now, it's at this point you're probably wondering, okay, what does any of this have to do with baptizing babies? Okay, hang in there. I'm going to get to it, okay? Don't tune out. It's so important. But in order for me to answer that, I have to ask another question. Why do you think these false teachers felt the way they did? Why did they think Jesus wasn't enough and they needed to supplement faith in Jesus with some sort of ritual, with some sort of law, even if some of these laws came from the Old Testament? Why? Read again what he says in verse 8. See to it no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. Just in case you're not aware of that phrase, elemental spirits of the world, that's Paul's way of deferring to, referring to demonic forces, satanic forces. And one of the things that Paul clearly says here in verse 8 is that Paul has one main agenda. You know what it is? It's to deceive you into believing a lie, right, empty deceit, that causes you to think like a slave, someone who is taken captive. Here's the question. When you think like a slave, how will that affect how you view God fundamentally? If you think of yourself as someone who is a slave, how will you fundamentally view God? You're going to view him as a master, right? Someone who you first have to please, someone who you first have to appease in order for him to be pleased with you, right? When you think like a slave, you're going to have this idea that you need to first perform in such a way that God will therefore respond with his approval and with his appeasement towards you. That's the mindset of a slave. And when you have the mindset of a slave, you are susceptible to having a ritualistic or legalistic mindset like these false teachers did. And what's even greater in terms of danger than that is that when you have the mindset of a slave, you develop a certain assumption about God. And you know what that assumption about God is? That assumption is God by nature, God by default, has a critical and condemning attitude towards you. That's going to be the fundamental assumption that you are going to have in terms of what you think the default disposition God has towards mankind. That he is critical, that he is condemning. And that he will look upon you with content unless, of course, you can warm him up, appease him to where eventually he'll come around and love you with favor and honor and love. Okay? Now, with that established, let me go on to ask, what do you think a person with a slave mindset is going to think when they see a pastor like me baptizing infants? What do you think they're going to think of me? Don't you think they're going to think that I'm being foolishly presumptuous? right? That I'm being stupid and I'm being dishonoring in my assumption of God by baptizing that baby. Because what they're going to be thinking is that I am, that I am assuming something about God that is the complete opposite of what they assume about God. That I am assuming that God by default is loving, he's kind, he's accepting, he's merciful, right? Don't you think that's how they're going to think, that I'm being absolutely presumptuous? 
Of course they are. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Whether you believe babies should be baptized or whether babies should not be baptized, the thing that you must understand is that both of these beliefs are equally presumptuous. Equally presumptuous. Okay? If you believe a baby should be baptized or a baby shouldn't be baptized because you think, A, God's natural disposition is to be critical and condemning, or you assume God's natural disposition is to be loving, and merciful, you are assuming both equally, right? One is not more presumptuous than the other. They are both equally presumptuous because there's no clear evidence that the baby is a Christian. So also there is no clear evidence that the baby is not a Christian. You don't know, right? And so the question is, which of these two presumptions of God's disposition towards mankind, which is the correct one? How do you know? Look at what Paul says, again, in verse 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, this is interesting. As we circle back to the topic of circumcision, Paul makes an association with that and baptism. Okay. Now, for those of you who are not aware, circumcision was something that people in the days of the Old Testament did as a symbol, right, that they had a loving relationship with God. I draw your attention, Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Then God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. From generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. Here we see in the Old Testament, circumcision functioning the same way baptism functions in the New Testament. It was a symbol of being in a positive, accepted, loving relationship with God. A covenantal relationship, kind of like marriage, okay? And notice that God commanded Abraham to not only be circumcised himself, but what else does he say? Make sure you circumcise your babies. Your babies. Why? Verse 7. Because this covenant is an everlasting covenant where I will be your God, and not only just your God, but I will be the God of your children. In other words, God commanded Abraham to circumcise his children so that as they grow up, they would know, hey, the love God has for my daddy, he has for me, evidenced by the fact that it was already there before I was even aware of it as a little kid through my circumcision. Now, if there is anything we need to take away from this is that clearly this tells us God's default, his natural, his automatic, his instinctive posture towards mankind, right, is not critical and condemning and judging, but one of acceptance, of love, of kindness, of mercy and grace, evidenced by the fact that his love for one generation doesn't end the moment that generation dies. It keeps going on and on to the next generation. Listen, nowhere in the Bible do you ever find an instance 
Nowhere in the Bible do you ever find an instance where a new generation has to start from scratch and say, okay, the previous generation worked hard to get God to love them. Now I guess we have to do our part and start over and we have to now do what they did in order for them to, in order for us to get what God did for them. For him to accept us, for him to love us, to him be in covenant with us. No. When you see a person acting consistently and continuously to not only one group of people but to another group of people like different generations clearly that is an indication that this behavior is their default mindset that this is the way they are this is their modus operandi this is their mo if god is continuously and consistently being loving from one generation to the next doesn't it make sense to conclude that his default dispositions towards babies is one of love and acceptance as well You see, the point that Paul is trying to make here in Colossians chapter 2 is simply this. God by nature is loving, not loathing. He is compassionate, not condemning. He is merciful, not mean. And because God never changed, that means those who should receive the symbol of his covenant love should not change either, even if the covenant sign itself has changed as a way to indicate that Jesus accomplished what the Old Testament circumcision was pointing to. You see, this is why we only baptize babies of believers and not babies in general. Because if we baptize a baby that doesn't come from a Christian home, what we're saying is, okay, at this point in this generation, God's love started. But scripture says God's love never begins. God's love never ends. It's continuous. It's who he is. It cannot falter from being here and not there. It's always there. God is consistently and continuously a God of love, a God of mercy. This is by nature who he is. This is this default mode. Consider what theologian Michael Reeves says. He writes this quote. The God who is love is the father who sends his son. To be the father then means to love, to give out love, to beget the son. Before anything else for all eternity, this God was loving, giving life to and delighting in his son. So the father, to be the father, must give out life. That is who he is. That is his most fundamental identity. Thus, love is not something the father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. He could not not love. If he did not love, he would not be the father putting all this together why do we baptize our babies not any baby but our babies babies born in covenant homes amongst christian parents we baptize our babies because it symbolizes what is consistent with what scripture reveals over and over regarding the nature of god god is fundamentally in his trinitarian nature a god of love so much so that he wants to make sure that when you are given the blessing of having a child one day He wants to declare the love he has for you in the same way that he will declare on the day that your child gets baptized, just like he declared it when his own beloved son was baptized in the Jordan River, okay? That's why we baptize babies, because it shows more than any other way the continuous, consistent nature of who God is and his natural disposition towards mankind, which is a disposition of love and mercy not of judgment and wrath. Now, with all that said, I want to end uh, with a couple things, um, specifically criticisms that we tend to hear often against those who don't agree 
uh, with our position here at NCF. And this leads me to my next point, how to answer the critics of baby baptism. Now, there are many numerous criticisms that people have leveled against those who practice infant baptism. And I want to focus on two that have routinely come up in my pastorate, something that I've heard many times, some of which came from out of your mouths. Okay, and I'm going to put these criticisms in question form. Uh, question number one, what if my baptized baby later on grows up to renounce his or her faith as an adult? Shouldn't that possibility cause us to not baptize that baby? Because after all, wouldn't that make God a liar? Wouldn't that make it look like God was not true to his promises by having this baby baptized? So shouldn't the possibility of them falling away prevent us from baptizing this baby? So that's the first criticism in question form. The second criticism is this question. If I baptize my baby, aren't I robbing my child to choose for themselves to follow Christ? Right? Aren't I taking away something important that they need to make, a decision they need to make for themselves? So maybe I should just let them decide to get baptized instead of me imposing, quote-unquote, my beliefs onto them. Let's quickly go through them. First, what if my baptized baby grows up to renounce his or her faith as an adult? You know what? That's true. That's a real possibility. Some of your baptized babies here, right, in this, across the hall from us, years from now, they may renounce their faith. That is true. That is a real possibility. You know what else is a real possibility? Adults who get baptized by their own profession of faith later on renouncing their faith too. Do you know how many references there are in the New Testament about warning passages of apostasy? Do you know, have you read through 1 Corinthians? Have you ever read through the book of Hebrews? Have you ever read through Revelation and 3 John? There are hundreds of references of people who God baptized as adults professing faith and later on they left the faith. In fact, you got to remember, a majority of the original audience that the New Testament was written to was first-generation Christians. That means they were the first generation who were baptized as adults, okay? And many that we know of have apostatized from faith. John talks about it all the time in his third letter, right? And yet, nowhere do you see in Scripture the argument that says, hey, because an adult person may later apostatize from their faith, we shouldn't baptize them. Why in the world would we put that kind of restriction on children when we don't put that kind of restriction on their adult counterpart? Does that make sense to you? It does not. Okay. Nowhere do you see God saying, no, 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 don't baptize them because you don't know 10 years from now, 15 years from now, they might have some crisis, they might have some tragedy, and they're going to turn away from their faith. So because that's a possibility, don't baptize them. No. The moment you profess faith is when you get baptized. The moment a child comes into this world, as soon as that child is able, is to receive baptism. The possibility of falling away is not a legitimate reason for why we should not baptize infants because it's not a legitimate reason to why we shouldn't baptize adults. Now let's move on to the second one. Okay? Aren't I robbing my child to choose for themselves to follow Christ by getting them baptized as infants? Answer, no. Here's what you need to understand, folks. Parents, listen. When a person gets baptized, that baptism is not a symbol of that person saying, I choose God. That is not what baptism says. When a person gets baptized, it actually says, God chooses that person. Okay? So when a person gets baptized, it's not, Lord, I choose to love you and to follow you, and therefore I'm getting baptized. No. Baptism at its core is God publicly declaring, 
I choose this child in love to be in the covenant with me. Okay? The Lord's Supper, on the other hand, that is a sacrament that says that when a person partakes of it, they are saying, I declare I will follow and choose Christ. That's why Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 to make sure you walk in a worthy manner before you take in the supper. This is why, by the way, we don't let our children who are baptized as babies here to partake in Lord's Supper until I or Pastor James can examine that child and say, you know what? You get it. You're on board. You love the Lord. You've chosen him. Come partake in the bread and the supper. See, the problem is some of you are confusing the sacraments. The sacrament of baptism is the indicative of the gospel. God has chosen to love you. The Lord's Supper is the imperative of the gospel. You choose to obey and to love God in fear. Do you understand that? When you understand that distinction, you come to understand that when the child gets baptized, they get to look forward to the time where they get confirmed and they can partake in their Lord's Supper for the first time. And this is an indication of them choosing to follow God in response to God first choosing them that came in the form of their baptism as babies. Now, I can't end it there because there's something else that I want to make sure that you understand because this is such an important thing and I can't end it with that. And I want you to recognize something here. When our child chooses to follow, or when our child chooses God, that is not the same thing as when they choose what sort of instrument they're going to play, what kind of school they're going to attend, or what kind of sport they're going to participate in. This is not a neutral decision, okay? Your child, my child, children, your children, are going to be growing up in a world where the culture is going to tell them, if you are a Christian, you're a fool, you're a bigot, you're on the wrong side of history, you're a hater. Not only are they going to live in that kind of culture, but they're going to be living in a world where there is a devil constantly tempting them to take on the slave mindset, right? They think God, by disposition, just doesn't, by default, like you. You first have to get him to like you by you obeying him with strict rules and so forth. And furthermore, they have a sinful flesh that is always enticing them to give in to sin. And they're going to be tempted to believe the devil as a way to psychologically justify their desire to sin. Your children have a lot of against them in order for them to choose God, okay? There's a lot of forces working against them to choose God, which means they're going to need a sign. They're going to need a symbol to assure them that God is truly, by default, for them and loves them. And guess what sign God gave us? Your child's baptism. Listen to what theologian Herman Witsius, an amazing Dutch reformer says this, quote, Here certainly appears the extraordinary love of our God, in that as soon as we are born, and just as we come from our mother, he hath commanded us to be solemnly brought from his, her bosom, as it were, into his own arms, that he should bestow upon us in the very cradle the tokens of our dignity and future kingdom, that in a word he should join us to himself in the most solemn covenant from our tender years, the remembrance of which, as it is glorious and full of consolation to us, so in like manner it tends to promote Christian virtues and the strictest holiness through the whole course of our lives." End quote. Do you understand what he is saying? Your children, if you really want your children to choose God, give them a real fair chance to choose God. Okay? Because there are so many forces at work trying to convince your child that their God hates them. That their God is against them. That their God first has to be appeased in order to be pleased with them. 
Do not rob your children of the one thing God commanded us so that your kid has a real fighting chance to believe who God really is as he claims he is, not what the world claims he is, not what the devil claims he is, not what their sinful flesh says he is. If you really want to give your kid a true chance to follow God in a fair manner, then do what God commanded. Get them baptized as infants so that when they look back, they know that their God was always for them. That his natural disposition, in spite of their sins, because of what Christ has done, has been for them and has called them to receive the gospel hope. That's the hope of the gospel. That's why we baptize our babies. <clears throat> With all this said, if you want to learn more about this whole thing, if today's sermon as masterfully as it was done, <laughs> didn't convince you, don't laugh, please. Um, here's some resources that I want to draw your attention to. YouTube, you guys are onto YouTube, right? I keep recommending books, and I think it's like talking to like a wall. So I'm just going to give, I'm going to give in, right, to your tendency to be anti-illiterate and give you a couple YouTube, sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to discourage you. I love you guys, but YouTube resources. There's a, a debate between R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur on infant baptism. Let me tell you, we win. <laughs> um, then there's the baptism between James White and Greg Strawbridge. Now, I like James White's stuff. He's okay, but he loses, okay? Booklet resource. Booklets, very short, 20 pages, please. We have guests. Don't embarrass me. Uh, what Christian parents should know about infant baptism. This is something that we require you parents to read, okay? And hence why we give you over a month to read it to meet with me or Pastor James to talk about it before we baptize you because we want to make sure you understand why the Bible says this. And then finally, why do we baptize infants by Brian Chappell, a uh, wonderful Bible scholar as well. If you want to have more questions answered by me, uh, please feel free to come talk to me afterwards. But my hope and prayer that as you listen to today's message, that you will come to understand who is your God? What does scripture give us warrant to presume about him that is consistent to what he's always said about himself that we see manifested in the baptism of infants or the withholding of baptism from infants? I guarantee you, if you're arguing from consistency, baptizing our infants is consistent to what is biblical about what our God reveals himself to be. And I hope you see that as well. Let's pray. Father, we ask that... Today's message, though a little bit more lecture, more academic in scope, will nevertheless warm our hearts and our minds in such a way that we would know that you are a God of good mercies and that you are a God of extravagant love. Father, as we think about how you have been so faithful to maintain this sacrament, even within traditions that get the gospel wrong, Lord, we are so encouraged that we who, by your grace, get the gospel right, can live that out by continuing this sacrament and giving it to our beloved children. Father, we know that there is no one who loves our children more than us than you. You are the true uh, parent. You are the one to whom every parent in here will have to answer to. And we pray that we will not add a unnecessary demonic stumbling block to our children, to your children, to your kingdom. Help us to remember this. Every time anyone challenges us within our own universal church that what we're doing is wrong, that they would go back and see their own blindness and their own slave mindset so that they would be set free and that the hope of the gospel will not only be just theirs, but for the next generation to come. Help us to believe this in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.